Welcome to our Painesville Assembly of God podcast. Our desire is to connect people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If this message touches your heart, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at or visit PainesvilleAG.com. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your faith. This morning, we're going to just kick off a new study, um, and uh, we're going to do so in the book of Nehemiah. So uh, you can be prepared. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1 today. On October 27, 1993, the Washington Post reported a story that was outrageously tragic. It was hard to believe. There was an elderly woman, Adele Gabory. She turned up missing. And at the time, concerned neighbors in Worcester, Massachusetts, informed police, but uh, a brother of hers, upon the police reaching out to next of kin family, contacted a brother, and he said that she was in a nursing home. And so that seemed to satisfy everybody. Neighbors began watching her property. Michael Crowley noticed her mail being delivered through the slot was piling up, and, and so he opened the door. Hundreds of pieces of mail drifted out, so he contacted the police, and they stopped her mail. Uh, Elaine Dugan started uh, paying her grandson $10 twice a month to mow the lawn and keep up with the outside of the house. Later, Dugan's son had noticed that that Gabri's uh, uh, water, her pipes had frozen and water was spilling out the door. And so the utility company was contacted and they, they shut off the water. What no one guessed is while they had been uh, attempting to help Gabory inside, uh, while they attempted to help her with her home, that what they didn't realize is, is the, the entire time she was inside her home. When police finally investigated the house after a health hazard, they were shocked to find her body. And that's when the Washington Post on October 27, 1993 reported that, uh, that she had died of natural causes four years prior. And no one noticed. However, because people kept up with the outside of the house, they kept up the respectable appearances of the outside, it hid the very terrible and tragic hidden reality on the inside. Can I suggest to you that oftentimes on the outside, our lives appear to be very put together. There are times where we can hide how things are on the outside. We can keep up with appearances. We can, we can say the amens and we can say the hallelujahs and, and we can, we can do a good job of putting up appearances on the outside while on the inside of our lives, there might be some cracks. There, there might be some decay. There might be some things that are dying on the inside that perhaps have been neglected, put off, or need attention. We're going to be looking at an Old Testament story, as I mentioned, in, in Nehemiah, the Old Testament book. And it's about a man who was told about a, a need, and he sought the Lord and then took action about rebuilding a, a wall doesn't seem like a whole lot more, but it, it really was a symbol of something much greater. Nehemiah was, was, was on a building program. He sought to rebuild physical walls. That was the main project, but it was truly symbolic of, of restoration and rebuilding the faith of a nation. 
along the journey as we travel through the book of Nehemiah over the next several weeks, what we're going to discover are some key principles on how to rebuild, how to revive, and how to refocus. And I think we need that in 2024. Refocus our spiritual lives and, and rebuild and revive our, our, what can we do to, to rebuild and revive the, the, our spiritual lives and the, the, the spiritual uh, nature of our church and our community. So in Nehemiah chapter 1, as you're turning there, let me provide some background information to kind of help with the context of what's going on in this situation. The story that we're about to read takes place during a, a period of time in Israel's history as waves and waves of people were being released from their place in, in exile, place in captivity. And in Babylon, they had been released to go back and return to the region of Judah and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. What led to their captivity was disobedience. It was disobedience over years and years and years to God's word. It was injustice and not taking care of the poor. It, it had to do with idolatry and worshiping the gods of, of other nations. And, and God had warned them over and over again, both in his word that he had given them through Moses and the covenant they had made at Mount Sinai with Moses. And you can read about it in the book of Deuteronomy as Moses warned them of what would happen if they started when they went into the land to worship the gods of those nations and to drift and turn their back on Jehovah God, yet they did not listen. And God in his grace and mercy sent prophet after prophet to warn them that judgment was coming if they did not get their lives in order, if they did not return to the Lord God and put aside their idolatry, yet they didn't. And years and years and years led to their captivity as the uh, Babylonian empire led by Nebuchadnezzar came in and attacked the city of Jerusalem and the people of Judah and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple and destroyed the walls and took captive people back with him, captive back to Babylon. And for 70 years, the people had remained in captivity. And during their time there, once Nebuchadnezzar had passed away, he had a grandson, Belshazzar, who had taken over and who decided that he was going to take the, the things out of the temple and use them in kind of a celebration. And at that point, if you might remember, if you read the book of Daniel, there was writing on the wall. And what he didn't realize is while he was, while he was celebrating the Persian Empire, the Greco-Persian, or the Medo-Persian Empire was right at the door of the city. And they came in and took over and, and there was new leadership. This, this, this partnership of the Medos and the Persians came together and then their empire. And it was after 70 years of captivity that a king, a, a, a foreign king, a Persian king by the name of Cyrus, used by the Lord, began to release waves and waves and waves of captives to be able to come back out of exile and to, to Judah and Jerusalem and to begin to, to rebuild in those areas. We see it in Ezra chapter 1. And the result of that first movement was that 50,000 Jews got to return and they attempted to rebuild the temple. 
but they faced resistance for those that, from those that were still in the area. There was lots of resistance to the rebuilding, even though Cyrus had, had given his decree and, and done that. They didn't have email. They didn't have some of the things that we have today. And so they, were, they, were, they faced resistance. And another wave of captives released under the direction of a priest named Ezra. And he was given permission and resources to rebuild the temple. And during that time, they had rebuilt the temple. But the rest of the city lie in shambles. And the walls of Jerusalem lie in shambles. And the spiritual temperature of the people moved to a place of complacency and compromise. And this is where we pick up our story today. Nehemiah chapter 1. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me and some other men who had just arrived from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews that had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who have returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. So as the story begins, we're introduced to a man whose name is Nehemiah. He is not a priest like Ezra who had returned before. Rather, he is what we might call a layman. I don't like that term. Mainly meaning someone who is not in full-time ministry or in the, the priesthood, but, but rather had been called to work another job. But how many of you know that all of us are in ministry? All of us can be used by the Lord. And Nehemiah, this man, had been called to be used by God. He was not a priest. He was not a pastor. He was not someone in, in ministry. Yet God, God pricked his heart and put a need in his heart for a rebuilding project in Jerusalem. More than just a physical rebuilding project, but more so a concern for the people who had returned. A concern for his own people. He had an important job. He had a, a good salary. He worked for the state. He, he worked not for his own state of, of Israel, but the, the state of the Persians, a, another state. His job was something like a bodyguard to the king. He was a cupbearer. And you say, what is a... What is a cupbearer? Well, that was a position of great responsibility. You see, at each meal, he, he was there in the presence of the king, and he had to taste the meal, and he had to taste the wine before the king would even have an opportunity to taste it. And if there was poison, somebody wanted to poison the king through the meal, or they wanted to poison the king through the wine, well, the cupbearer was the one who would know that, because he would go... And then there'd have to be a new cupbearer, but the king would be protected. But you see, this position, this position was, was one that put him in the presence and in the court and the throne of the king. So he had to be someone that, that was put together, someone that was, was handsome, a man that, 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 that stood out in the public, that was cultured, that was knowledgeable, that, that at times was even from the king as he's sitting there and the king is contemplating things, would, would advise the king. 
Someone who was in that role would oftentimes be an advisor of the king. We see it early on when, when Pharaoh, uh, later on, Joseph is in prison, and the cupbearer was one of the ones, the cupbearer and baker were in prison, and they had dreams, and then they forgot about Joseph. When the cupbearer was restored, and the king had a dream that no one could interpret, who was the one that said, hey, I know a guy? It was the cupbearer. So oftentimes, the cupbearer was in a position of influence and a position that was close to the king, had access to the king and great influence rather than uh, kind of like a prime minister. It was more like a master of ceremonies rolled into one. And Nehemiah had a job like this. He lived in the royal city of Susa. Where is Susa? Well, Susa is the winter residence of King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. Judah was the homeland for Nehemiah, and that was thousands of miles away. Yet Nehemiah received a visit from his brother and news from back home that things were not so good. In fact, they were pretty bad. But his job at the time would not allow him to be able to return with the captives. He didn't return with them, but he's hearing this report and his job doesn't seem to give him the opportunity or allow him the chance. But all of a sudden, the joys of his good job, his high standing that he had and, and the influence that he had, suddenly that didn't matter as much as the problems that were happening back home. The problems that were happening as God began to, to prick his heart and this this interruption changed his perspective, and this interruption actually changed the course of his life. Nehemiah again made aware that the walls were broken down, symbols of protection, symbols of security, a place of, of commerce where leaders would gather together and, and the gates where there would be commerce that would come through. And oftentimes you see at the city gates and at the walls, that's where the leaders would gather and they would make important decisions, but there was no wall. There was no protection. This was a, a place of, of ruins and it, and it resulted in being a place of reproach and trouble and disgrace. Instead of the magnificent city, Jerusalem was in shambles and where there had once been great glory, now there was nothing but great reproach. God was being dishonored as long as the city of Jerusalem was in ruins. God was being, God was being dishonored and his people were, were broken. His people were disgraced and all of this was happening. And so Nehemiah's heart was pricked. Maybe you have recently become aware of something that has just been troubling to you. Maybe as you look around at, at our world today or you look around at our nation, it troubles you and it, and, it, and it concerns you. And like Nehemiah, you are burdened because you see that there are many, many areas in which there are cracks spiritually, many areas that have, that have fallen. Maybe you look at your family and, 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 you, and you, you see those in your family that are not serving the Lord or that are hurting or that are going in a direction that you know they shouldn't be going. And, and, and so your heart is pricked as you begin to have concern about the breakdown that has been been happening in their lives or their decisions or their choices or maybe you personally when you take a look at your own spiritual house you say it's not where it should be it's not where it should be there are some areas where there's some chinks or cracks in the walls there, there are some areas where there is some rubble things aren't where they they should be there's maybe some some decline morally in my life. 
What do we do when we are faced with this reality? What do we do when we are faced with this daunting reality? What, how, do we, how do we respond? I think we can learn some things with Nehemiah. I think we can learn some things from Nehemiah as, as we begin to say, what does it take to rebuild? What does it take for revival? What does it take for us? And what areas do we need to refocus in our lives? What do we learn from Nehemiah? Well, I think the first thing we learn is, is that when we are faced with something like this, when we're faced with this kind of a burden, when we're faced with something that seems to be more than what we can handle on our own, or we just don't know what to do, Nehemiah teaches us to pray first. He teaches us to pray first. When Nehemiah heard the walls had been broken down, when he heard that the people were facing reproach and disgrace, the spiritual health of the nation was in decline, Nehemiah turned to prayer. Nehemiah 1.4, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and I fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. This past Tuesday, I was at Man to Man, that's our monthly men's gathering, and there, this was one of the themes of the things that we had talked about while we were there that came up was the importance of praying first. It seems like uh, prayer sometimes is a last resort rather than the first resort. Well, I've done everything I can, I better pray. I know nobody in the first service has ever felt like that, that's all those in the second service. Right? That has ever, ever said that. I, I think sometimes our first response is not prayer. Our first response is plan. What can I plan? What can I do? We like to plan. I'm a planner. I like to plan. I'm a, I'm a get it done kind of person. That, I, I look at a situation and I go, okay, immediately, how can I problem solve? And what can we do? And what can we do this? And oftentimes that's where we begin. What can I do? I need to do this. Well, let's make a plan. How can we rebuild? What are the resources we need? Let's put this together. If I'm Nehemiah, my first response might not be prayer. My first response might be well, okay, how many people do we need? And, 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 and let me, how many gates were there again? And okay, let me get together and let's figure out a plan. And let's do it. Okay, God, this is our plan. Now bless it. Okay, God, this is the plan. This is what we've come up with now. We need you to bless it and we need you to make it happen. I think oftentimes rather than pray first, oftentimes we plan first and we expect God to bless our plans rather than seek him for his plans. Uh-oh, right? Oftentimes, that's what happens. In fact, while we're reading this, it says the memoir of Nehemiah. This is kind of a diary or a journal that Nehemiah was keeping uh, of his time. We, we might get the impression, if you read through Nehemiah chapter 1, and we didn't read through all of it, that when you turn the page to chapter 2, and he, and he approaches the king, you might get the impression that Nehemiah heard this and he wept and he fasted and he did that for several days. Okay, he did that for three or four days or whatever. And then he was sad in the presence of the king and, 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 and the king said, what's happening? And then he began to pour out his heart and God answered his prayer and, that, and that's what happened. But can I point something out, something that just, just arrested my attention this week, and it was the details of, of, of when it gives the, the time as he's detailing in his, in his journal when these things took place. Look at Nehemiah 1.1, the first part of it. 
in late autumn, the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. That's when, that's when he's beginning. That's when he was first approached by his brother was in the autumn, in the month of Kislev, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. That's about the November, December of our calendar, so to speak. Somewhere in there between November and December. And then in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1, he writes again, uh, and he says this. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, not the car, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. So they're both in the year of King Artaxerxes, the 20th year of his reign, but one in Kislev and the other in the month of Nisan. Kislev, again, November, December, Nisan is the month of, of, of March, April. There's a good chance that, that more than 100 days passed before the time when his brother had come and his heart was pricked and he was made aware of what was happening in Jerusalem and felt this, this overwhelming burden that something needed to be done because the people were in disgrace and he mourned and he fasted and it says several days, but can I tell you that he mourned and he fasted and he prayed more than a hundred days before he actually was moved to action. We like microwave. We like fast food. We like Spotify downloads and Amazon orders that come the next morning on our porch. And when it comes to prayer, oftentimes culturally, that's what we expect from God. Like he is the Amazon delivery guy. And like we put in our order and we need a prime request answered right now, God. Here it is. This is my problem. Pray and deliver the next morning. Maybe we can wait two or three days, but much more than that. And God, why aren't you hearing me? We're not a people who persevere in prayer. We're not a people who will, who will take time to pray. If something isn't happening as quickly as we think, we think that God isn't hearing us, isn't answering us, doesn't care, and it must be on us to figure it out. There was over a hundred days before Nehemiah, in the presence of the king, had the king say to him, you're looking pretty down today. What's going on? And that he was given the opportunity to be able to share the need and when God moved him to action. Pray first, friends. Pray first. And maybe you struggle with prayer. You say, well, well, how do I pray? How do I, how do I do this prayer thing? I really struggle with prayer. I struggle with this prayer thing. How do I, how do, I do this prayer thing? Well, I think we, we learn from Nehemiah's prayer that there is kind of a, a neat little pattern for prayer that kind of helps us and gives us a, a, a little bit of a pattern if we're going to dig in and seek the Lord. So let's look at this, these great principles. I'm going to just share three of them, three principles on how to pray. First, what we find is Nehemiah begins by acknowledging the greatness of God. Acknowledging the greatness of God. Look at this, verse, verse 5. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. O Lord, the God of heaven, and then he says this, the great and awesome God. How many like that word awesome? Man, that was an awesome meal. 
Man, that was an awesome football game last night. Man, we, we throw that word around all the time. Awesome. Awesome really means awe-inspiring. Awe-inspiring. Nehemiah begins by acknowledging the greatness and the awe-inspiring nature of God. Why is that important? Why is that important? I think sometimes when we face overwhelming situations, when we face situations that are, that are, that are bigger than we can handle, I think sometimes we, we, we begin to see those things as being the ultimate. Like, man, this is just huge. I don't know how, I'm, how are we ever going to do this? But when you begin with praise, when you begin with the, the greatness of God, what you're doing is you're magnifying the greatness of God. And how many know that when you magnify the greatness of God, no matter how big your problems are, they're always, they always pale in comparison to the greatness of God. Oh, there was only a few amens. Maybe some of you don't know that. I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> there is no problem that our God cannot handle. There is no problem too big for our God. Greg Laurie, he, he said this, when you see God in his greatness, you will see your problems in their relative smallness. In their relative smallness. Praise helps us get the right perspective. So no matter what problems we face, praise puts those problems in perspective. Whether you are, whether you are, 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 are Paul and Silas in a prison in chains and chains and you've been whipped and beaten and you're in jail and you're chained together. And all of a sudden you begin with praise. Your problems pale as God begins to move and he begins to shake the jail cell. And the chains begin to come off and the jail cell doors come open and the jailer himself gives his life to Jesus Christ and his whole family. Come on, somebody. Our God is greater than any problems you face. Our God is greater. We've got to begin with praise. Jesus taught his disciples. They, they said to him, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. And he, he gives a pattern for them. We, we know it as the, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6 is one area where we see that. And, and Jesus says, this is how you open. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How does Jesus teach them to pray? He teaches them to pray by acknowledging their Father, their Father who is holy, and saying, God, your will, not ours, be done on earth as it is in heaven. We start with our Father. We don't start, give us this day our daily bread. Keep us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. Think about your own prayer life. How do you usually start? God, help me, I need this. Right? Oh, Lord, I'm going through this and I really need you to answer. Oh, God, I, I, I need this provision. I, I don't know how I'm going to pay this bill. Oh, God. We oftentimes start with our need. But we don't start with praise. And yet the pattern in scripture teaches us to begin by acknowledging God in prayer. To begin by acknowledging God in prayer. Even if it comes to, to being anxious and we're told in, in Philippians, be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving. What does thanksgiving do? Thanksgiving allows us to remember that God is the provider and that God is able. 
In fact, this very, this very prayer in Matthew chapter 6, later on, what we find is, is, is that Jesus says, listen, 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 you don't, you don't have to worry about what you'll eat and what you'll drink. You don't have to worry about what you're worried. The pagans, the unbelievers, they worry about those things. We can come to God who provides. Secondly, Nehemiah confessed not only his personal sin, but the sins of his people. Verse 6, listen to my prayer, look down and see me, see, see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I'm interceding for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly, not by obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Nehemiah moves from praise and then he moves into a position where he humbles himself and he says, listen, we have sinned against you. Not this, this nation has sinned against you or that people have sinned against you. We have sinned against you. My very own family has sinned against you. I have sinned against you. He begins with confessing his sin. The amazing thing is, is up to this point, we don't see any particular kind of sin that Nehemiah has fallen into. As far as we know, Nehemiah was not one who was worshiping idols or, 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 or idolatry whatsoever. And his, his very response to move to prayer and honor the Lord tells us that there was nothing personally within his life that would have done that. After 70 years of captivity and the waves, we're probably talking about 90 years since they were first took, taken captive. And he wasn't even a part of that. He wasn't even a part of that idolatry that led to the captivity. Yet. He understands the importance of humbling himself. He understands the importance of confessing sin and of repenting, not only for his own sin or his family, but even on behalf of the nation and saying, we're a part of that. How many know that unconfessed sin can hinder our prayers from being answered? Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. I think sometimes it's hard for us to admit that, that we're part of the problem. Perhaps we're like the little boy who was being disobedient and misbehaving and his mother sent him to his room for punishment. And so he was in his room and she went to check on him. And, and uh, as she walked in, he said to her, mom, I've been praying. I've been praying to the Lord. And she said, that's good, son. I'm so glad you've been praying that, and, and, and asking the Lord to help you not misbehave anymore and, and to help you to, to, you know, to be more obedient. He said, oh, I wasn't praying for that. I wasn't praying to the Lord that I, I wouldn't misbehave. I'm praying to the Lord that you'd put up with me. He give you the strength to put up with me. I think sometimes we, we ignore our own sin or our own part of things. And we say, okay, God, well, mine's not as bad as theirs, so just put up with me. What I do isn't as bad as what they do. Just put up with me. Just put up with me. When our lives and our walls are in disarray, we, when we're broken, we rather than confess our sins or admit that we have a part of the problem, we'd rather... Rather, ask God to look the other way and put up with us. But when it comes to rebuilding our spiritual house, confession is a must. Confession is a must. Maybe you're, you're praying for your spouse or your kids, or maybe you're praying for the nation, and you don't feel, feel like confession is, is necessary. 
When Nehemiah confessed sin on behalf of his family, he confessed sin on behalf of his nation, and he engaged in repenting for the sins that they had committed, as well as himself. And sometimes when we pray, we we pray, God, change others. God, change them. God, change them. God, change them. But how many know that prayer, oftentimes what happens is God changes us. God wants to change us. And then he might use you to change the situation. Like the story I heard of two older ladies, they'd never flown before and they were afraid of flying in a jet, but they had to, they had to fly. So they found somebody that would fly them in a prop plane and they get on and they get up into the air. And, and uh, as they're up there, they hear a loud bang sound and they look out and one of the engines had given way. And the one lady says to the, the other lady, she says, oh, don't worry about that engine. That's on the other side of the plane. Oh, don't worry about, about that. Don't worry about what they're doing. That's a, that's not, that doesn't concern me. But how many of you know that we all go down? <laughs> it does concern us. We all go down. And, 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 and we can't approach like the problems and the decline are other people's problems. We have to begin to say, Lord, our nation needs a spiritual awakening. God, my family needs a spiritual awakening. Lord, I need a spiritual awakening. And how many of you know a spiritual awakening begins with me? A spiritual awakening must begin with me. Revival must begin with me. We've got to stop pointing the fingers out there and start taking ownership of our own contribution to the decline. Thirdly, we're reminded, or Nehemiah reminded God of his promises. Nehemiah 1, 8 to 10. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful to me, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. What's Nehemiah doing here? Nehemiah is saying, God, these are your promises. You said that, that if we sinned against you, we'd be scattered, and that happened. But you also said that if we repent and we turn back to you, that you will draw us back and that you will restore us as a nation. That's what you promised Moses. That was what was a part of the covenant, and I am praying into that and praying into your promise. It's not that God has forgotten his promises. God doesn't forget his promises. God doesn't forget his promises. Reminding God about his promises is not so much reminding God as it is about reminding yourself of what God said and what God promised he would do. Because how many of you know his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus? His promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Nehemiah was praying through the promises. You know there are some 3,000 promises in God's word. 3,000 promises for believers in God's word. And God is faithful to every one of those that he has promised. Anybody get gift cards for Christmas? How many got gift cards for Christmas? You know, I looked it up. There were two articles, one on, on, on usatoday.com, uh, one on cnn.com. They both had the same number. Do you know that last year, there were, I don't want to get this wrong, there were $12 billion in unused gift cards last year. $12 billion spent on gift cards that went unused that didn't go cashed in. Can I tell you that there are promises in God's word 
that we as believers treat like those gift cards and we never cash in on the promises of God. Some of us are letting those promises go to waste. We, we let those promises go to waste. Nehemiah says, Lord, there's a promise I want to cash in on. You said that this would happen. We'd be scattered. But you also said that if we repent, that you would bring us back. You already started that. You need to finish it because that's what you said. That's what you said. That's what you said for your glory and for your name's sake. That's what you said. You see, when we begin to recount the promises of God, we begin to pray into the promises of God. It increases our faith to believe God for it. It increases our faith to say, I believe you for it, Lord. I'm going to just touch on four promises real quick. I'm going to go real quick through these. Four promises you can pray through. I'm going to give you four promises. There's, there's, there's a, you know, a, a ton more. 2,000... Two 996 more that you can cash in on. Let me just give you four, okay? Isaiah 41.10 says, you will never be alone in life. Do not be afraid for I am with you. Do not be discouraged for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will, I, I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. God says, I'm not going to leave you. You don't have to, I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not walking away from you. I'm not leaving you. If you're struggling and you're feeling alone, if you're struggling and you say, I, I just, I feel so alone. Let me tell you something. There's a promise in God's word. He says he will never leave you, that he will walk with you, that he will be with you each and every day. Scripture says he's close to the brokenhearted. Number two, God will provide for your needs. We mentioned this a little bit earlier, but here's the promise. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. What were all of those things? Like I said, Jesus, they were people that were worried. He said, don't worry. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll wear. That, that, uh, your heavenly father sees your need, and, and, and he will provide for you. The pagans run after these things. The unbelievers run after these things. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you seek the Lord, you can stand on this promise that God will provide for your needs. God will provide for your needs. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, Scripture says, or God's seed begging for bread. Malachi 3.10 says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there'll be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's army, I'll open up the windows of heaven for you and I'll pour out a blessing so great you won't have room enough to take it in. Try me, put me to the test. Very few things does God say, put me to the test. But in this area, God says, put me to the test. I promise I'll provide for you. If you will, if you will honor me, if you will seek me first, if you will give your tithe to me, I promise you that you will never lack you will never lack I will provide for you I will provide for you number three God will get you through whatever you're facing that's a promise Isaiah 43 2 when you go through deep waters I will be with you when you go through rivers of difficulty you will not drown when you walk through the fire of oppression you will not be burned up the flames will not consume you no matter what you're facing God says I'll get you through it he doesn't always take us around it and he doesn't always remove us from it but he promises that he'll bring us through it He'll bring us through it. God will bring you through it. God will bring you through it. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, whatever you're, whatever's happening as you begin 2024, I'm going to tell you, keep your eyes on Jesus and, and just know his promise. He will bring you through it. He will bring you through it. He will bring you through it. Why? Because he is faithful. He is faithful. Come on now. He is faithful. That's right. Promise number four. He promises to forgive all 
our sins, all our sins. Remember, Nehemiah confessed both his personal sins, the sins of his family, the sins of his nation. Why did he do that? Because he knew this promise that God forgives sins. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you will humble yourself, if you will humble yourself and you will come to the Lord and you will say, I'm a sinner, I have sinned against you. If you will acknowledge and you will confess your sin, there is no sin that is too great that God cannot forgive. There is no sin that if you bring it before the Lord and you confess it before the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross for you, because he died on the cross for you and shed his blood, there is no sin that he cannot forgive. There is no sin that is so great that God cannot forgive. God wants to forgive you and he will forgive you all of your sins. And what's the basis of that? It's not on your goodness. It's not on your goodness. What does it say? He will forgive you and purify your sins. Why? If we confess our sins, what's it say? He is what? Faithful and just. You are, you are counting on the character of God. You are not counting on your own character. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. It doesn't rely on my character. We count on the character of God, and God is faithful and just, and so we can count on God to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me land the plane, and we're going to come to a time of communion. Worship team, if you'll prepare. Nehemiah recognized the city of Jerusalem was broken down. The people were disgraced and in ruin, and it moved him to pray, and it moved him to fast, and eventually to be God's catalyst for change. Nehemiah began with prayer. So let me ask you a question as we close this message out and we move into a time of communion. Let me, let me ask you a question this morning. What's the condition of your spiritual house? What's the condition of your spiritual house? Is it in a state of decay? Is it broken down? Are there some cracks that need to be filled in? What's the condition of your spiritual house? If God wants to do a rebuilding project in you, friends, it begins with prayer. It begins with prayer, acknowledging who God is, confessing our sin, saying, God, we've, we've sinned against you. We've sinned against you. And then beginning to say, God, these are your promises. This is what you promised to do. This is what you promised to do. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and confess and turn. That's a promise. God wants to begin a rebuilding project in our lives. God wants to begin a, a rebuilding project spiritually in our lives and spiritually in our church and spiritually in our community and spiritually in our nation. But if we are going to be a catalyst for change like Nehemiah, then we have to begin by saying, God, it is not their problem. This is my problem. And we've got to let the burden get inside of us and move us to prayer, move us to prayer, move us to fasting, move us to seeking the Lord, move us to seeking the Lord. So this morning, and as we get through, we're going to see practical things, but the practical plans came after this time of prayer and humbling himself. And so this morning, if you're here and you, you would just say, as we bow our heads this morning, you'd say, Pastor, 
uh, my spiritual house is in a place of decay, a place of decline, or maybe there's some cracks, there's some things that need to get, that need to get fixed, there's some things that need to get, that I need to get right with the Lord, there's some things in my spiritual house that need to be, that need to go through some rebuilding. And this morning, if you're here, maybe, maybe you just recognize, I haven't even, I haven't even confessed my sin to Jesus, I don't even know the Lord, or maybe I, you know, I need to return to some things of the Lord. As we just begin this time, if that's you, and maybe there's things in your life, I need to get right with the Lord, I need to confess some sin to the Lord, I'm not going to tell you to shout it out or tell us what it is, yet it's between you and Jesus, but you just said, Pastor, will you include me in your prayer today, will you include me in your prayer today that I, I got some things that I got to get in order, I got some things that I need, I need to get right with the Lord. If that's you, will you slip up your hand today? Some things I got to get right with the Lord. There's some things I got to get right with the Lord. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, let's just pray and get our hearts right before we, we participate in communion together. Jesus, we just thank you that you are with us. We thank you, God, that you love us and that you care about us. And we thank you, Lord, that one of the promises in your word is that you promise to forgive us of all our sin. God, there are some areas in our lives, maybe with some cracks, maybe some things that need attention. Maybe there have been some areas that, that we've neglected a bit. And God, we, we need to get right with you. So today we humble ourselves and we confess our sin to you. We confess, God, the areas in our life where, where maybe we are, we are not where we should be. We have, we have not been obedient to you. We've sinned against you. And we repent today and we ask you, Lord, for your forgiveness. And we ask you, God, for your grace. And we ask you, God, to move in our hearts and our lives and begin a work of renewal, a work of awakening, a work of rebuilding our spiritual house. God, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you're encouraged by this message. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, visit PainesvilleAG.com.